a son, first of all, I'd like to congratulate you for being a great person and accomplishing your dream of being drafted and having the opportunity to play professional football. You have made me a proud father. I am so proud of the young man you have become. What would you like to say to your dad? Oh, you can imagine. You can imagine the emotion that the two of them have shared. I just want to tell my dad that I love him. I miss you, dog. You, you got, you've been a positive influence on my life for my whole entire life. So I just want to thank you and let you know that I love you, man. And we did it. Welcome to the Sportscasters episode number 18. It is May 3rd, 2011. We are in Buffalo, New York. My name is Steve Bennett. My co-host is Don Ross. How are you doing today, Don? Awesome. How are you doing? I am extra pumped up. You know why, Don? Because of the draft? Well, the draft is certainly <laughs> part of it. But the reason that I'm pumped up today is we get to talk about the Saints today. <laughs> yeah. It is Saints Day sort of here on the Sportscasters. Uh, it is the end of another month of the book club, and the book this month was From Bags to Riches by Jeff Duncan, the New Orleans Saints beat writer for the New Orleans Times-Picayune. So Jeff is going to be joining us a bit later in what is a very crowded show. We have an interview with Jeff today. We also have an interview with Stu Hackle. Stu is kind of one of the old-time hockey dudes out there in hockey journalism. He used to work for the NHL in the office in New York. He was one of... Uh, he was one of Gary Bettman's guys, and he ended up leaving that job. I think he was the director of broadcasting, and he ended up leaving that job to become the a, a writer, and he blogs for the New York Times about hockey, and he also blogs on sportsillustrated.com about hockey. It's called the Red Light, uh, Red Light Blog, and it's actually fa- fantastic. But Donnie, he's one of these guys, and I did this yesterday. I talked to him yesterday. He's one of these guys that... He's an old-timer, and I think it'd be cool sometime to have him on the podcast when it was the off-season, just to talk to him about stories. Because yeah. he's the kind of guy you can tell just has like a ton of stories, and he kind of answers each question almost like it's a story. You know, He's like he's a classic old-timer, and I think everyone's going to really enjoy that interview. Now, we may or may not have Zachy's score today. Uh, he got a late call at work, and he might be, uh, not be able to join us today. If he does, it will be a part of this episode. If it, he doesn't, he will definitely be on next week. So we will have Zach today or next week. I'm not sure right now as we speak, but it will be one of the others. Another announcement about future, future shows, since it's on my mind, and I don't want to forget later. May 20th, the great Dave Damashek will be with us to celebrate, or May 17th is the date. Dave Damashek will be back to celebrate with us for our 20th show nice so dave damashek is going to be on in a few weeks and we're excited about that as for today why don't we just get started with three things let's Tight. play a game all right <laughs> count of three one all righty i'll take it off two the oil patterns on a pba lane are very very difficult I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever! <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep! Now let's move on to other business. 
All right, my first of uh, three things, all of which just happened to deal with football. The Patriots and Eagles in the sixth round of the draft traded 193rd and 194th overall picks hmm. just to do it. And I, I kind of like this. I think it's funny that they just had a little fun with it. Uh, every year for I'm not sure how many years, but the Patriots, Belichick and Andy Reid are buddies, and they have a long history of dealing draft picks. And they decided to keep it going this year by swapping 193rd and 194th picks. <laughs> that was it. That, that was, was the terms it. of the deal. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of reminds me of something that would happen at a fantasy football draft. Just for that. Yeah, just a it. couple guys, just, you know, joking around. Yeah, yeah let's swap, swap picks here. Yeah, I like it. As much as, like, Bill Belichick is kind of a, a villainous guy. Yeah, that was, it's kind of a f- fun thing he did there. It's interesting to see that. Bill Belichick has fun. Yeah. <laughs> My first thing, you know, the NHL playoffs is all about making stars. And we've seen it happen year after year after year. The, the playoffs come and someone emerges as a big star in the league. And this year, the player that is doing that is James Van Riemsdyk of the Philadelphia Flyers. Yep. In nine games in the playoffs, he has seven goals. And he is just an absolute bull. And I'd love to watch him play. He was the... Second pick in the 2007 first round. He was actually the pick after Pat Kane. Uh, Pat Kane could be the guy that you could say kind of emerged as a big star in last year's playoffs. Uh, But Van Riemsdyk is a bull. And he started off a little slow in his NHL career, but he's really, he's 6'3", he's 200 200 pounds, and he's really grown into that body. You can't get him off the puck. He had two goals last night. He's the heart and soul of the Flyers. He's totally outplayed Carter, totally outplayed Richards. And I'm just really pumped up that he's going to be a part of Team USA in the future because he is going to be one of the best forwards, or one of the best left wingers for sure, in the National Hockey League for the next 10 years. Yeah, he's uh, nasty. He's got skill. He's big, like you said. Uh, a lot of times you see guys in the playoffs that come through. I was actually just looking at the playoff stand, uh, stats today. Ryan Kloh, who does not have the pedigree, I guess you could say, or the – the stock, the draft stock, or any of that. He was drafted in the sixth round, and he currently is one of the league leaders in the playoffs. And it's just interesting that guys like that, he's a big boy too, but guys like that, uh, Franzen, those guys just always, They emerge. Yeah, they just. It's the time of the year. There's certain players that they embrace this time of the year and they just pick their playoff to a level that you almost didn't even know they had in them. Yep. And it's really fun to watch, especially when it's a guy, like you said, who has the pedigree that we've been waiting for this from. Right, right. It's just so incredible to watch the kid go from just a player who wasn't quite ready for prime time, maybe should have spent another year at the University of New Hampshire where he played college hockey, just kind of just busting out. And uh, that's my number one thing. Uh, The second thing uh, actually deals with the number two. Cam Newton wore number two in... uh, College. In college, yeah. Yep. For Auburn. There. Yep. Yeah, he wore number two there, but he will not be wearing it to start with the Carolina Panthers. Jimmy Clausen is too. will not give up his number. <laughs> <laughs> a guy who was kind of known as a little bit of a jerk maybe in college uh, is living up to it, I guess. He's, he said oh, he welcomes him or whatever, but it's mine right now. We'll see what happens. You know, it's interesting because Jimmy could get probably a nice dollar for that number. He could, right. Players sell their numbers all the time yep. in these leagues, and I bet you could get uh, $40,000, I would guess, for the number. Maybe you might want to take it because his uh, future tenure, in the league. Yeah, his, his tenure as a starting quarterback is definitely gone. In, uh, his I like it, the, though. I like it. 
Clawson, it's kind of like Clawson is kind of saying, you know what? I'm not just giving this team away to you. <laughs> right. Just because you were the number one pick, I'm not just going to give this away. It kind of shows a little fight in him. Yeah, kind we'll of see. a little toughness. We'll see. There's almost zero chance that even – I mean, how, how bad would uh, how bad would Newton have to look in the preseason to not give the job to Clawson, though? Oh, he'd have to be atrocious. Right. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's Newton's job to, to win. Uh, to lose, I should right, say. Right. But, uh, you know, I, it shows a little fight in Glasson, I think. All right, my second thing. I'm giddy. I'm giddy about the draft that the New Orleans Saints just had. Two, Wes Bunting. Wes Bunting was on the show last mm-hmm. week. And he put out a top 100. And two of the guys in his top 11 were Saints draft picks at number 21 and 28, or 24. And 28, excuse me. So we got his number 8 rated player and number 11 rated player with the 24th and 28th round pick in the draft. Mark Ingram, we played that clip off the top. You can't help but be really excited about him. Cameron Jordan is a really good player. And the Saints did well in the later rounds. And Wes Bunting actually put a article on his site, the National Football Post, and he graded some teams. So, Donnie, you tell me an NFC team, and I'll tell you their grade in the draft. What, what, who are you curious about? NFC? Yeah, an NFC team. That's what this article I got in front of me here is about. How about Tampa Bay? Tampa Bay, I heard, had done a good job in the draft. And I was expecting their grade to be high, and it is. It is an A-. minus. Uh, he says that they added a pair of defensive ends, and they got that. Oh, they're the team that got Daquan Bowers. Remember, oh, Daquan right. Bowers was a guy right. who was supposed to be possibly the first overall pick in the draft. And then he had some knee issues, and he fell way down. And, uh, but anytime you can get a guy who was once considered a first overall pick that late, it's going to make your draft Did anybody have a questionable? Like a, I know in the AFC, there's a lot of people saying that San Diego had a real questionable draft, reaching on a lot of players. Did anybody, any team like that? Well, he gave the Dallas Cowboys a C. Interesting thing, he gave the Detroit Lions an A++. Two pluses. Uh, let's see. Who else is in here? A lot of good grades. Here's a C. Carolina got a C. Yeah. Um, the Saints, he gave an A+. Plus. Very giddy about that. A couple Cs. And Seattle Seahawks, he got a C-. Minus. And that's the one team from the oh, NFC right, I've right. heard. And that's interesting because they had such a strong draft last year. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people really, really like their draft coming out this year. I haven't heard anything good about it. Uh, I think some people like James Carpenter, who was their first pick. It just, I don't think he was first-round talent. I think that was a big reach, and uh, he gave them a C-minus, lowest grade in the NFC. Is he going to be doing the same thing with the AFC? I think another guy did the thing in the AFC, AFC. and if you want to read your third thing, I will find it. Okay, my third thing is the last pick that the Bills made, and this is is the first time hearing of this because I didn't actually follow the seventh round or whatever that closely. But the Bills you used didn't? no, oh. I know, shocking. The Bills used their seventh round pick to select same, someone named Michael Jasper, and when they drafted him, according to Tim Graham's report on ESPN, he says reporters had a hard time finding him in the media guide. They had no idea who this guy was. Uh, he wasn't listed among Mel Kiper's top 105 defensive tackles. What? Yeah. So they kept digging, and it turns out he was listed as a guard under Kiper's. Uh, list. 
He's 6'4 and played last season at 430 pounds. Woo! He weighed 448 pounds in January, and uh, he started off at a tackle, defensive tackle position at Tennessee Martin and switched to offensive tackle. Then he transferred to Middle Tennessee State before going to Bethel College, where he started at both guard and defensive tackle. They said they, they found him in guard in Kuiper's Guide. Uh, Bill's scouts asked Jasper to get below 400 pounds, and he trimmed down to 375. Uh, buddy Nick says that the scout Matt Hand has been stalking this guy for a year. Uh, the Bills planned on signing him as a rookie free agent, but with the lockout, they really can't. And he said this kid's amazing. His vertical jump is 32 inches. He long jumped like 9 feet 5 inches and dunks a basketball with either hand at 400 pounds. That's incredible. Uh, and Buddy Nick said in kind of a funny statement, we're going to see if he can play. Coach Chan Gailey can tell you what we're going to do with him besides feed him, I guess. <laughs> so That's great. I'm ex- I've never been excited about a seventh-round pick before, but it'll be interesting to see what, what will happen with this guy because he's a freak. Yeah. Supposedly he runs well, too. So Why not? I, I imagine he's real raw, but, yeah, like you said, why not? It'll be interesting to see what happens. And I like how they had him as a guy that they would normally – Sign as an unrestricted free agent, but because of the lockout, yep, they, had to they him took up. him anyway, and I like that. It's, it's aggressive. I do have Wes Bunting's grades here for the AFC, and he gave the Buffalo Bills, who we talk about a lot here on the show, a C-. minus. Ooh, Not a big fan of the draft. He said, first-round pick Marcel Darius was the safe option at th- three overall. This is Wes Bunting, by the way, at the National Football Post. He's a strong anchor player who can eat up blocks inside and make everyone's life around him easier. However, I would want more of an impact guy when picking that high. Second-round pick Aaron Williams is an overrated DB in my book, and my favorite pick of their draft is linebacker Kelvin Shepard, whom they might have reached on just a bit. So not too high on the Bills draft. Although I would say the most important thing for the Bills draft was to make sure they got a player at number three who's going to be a good player for the team for the next 10 years. Marcel Darius might be a little safe, but the Bills were not in a position to take a risk there. No. They had to pick a safe player. They had to pick a guy who would be a clog in the middle for a long time. And I like the pick a lot. I would probably grade their draft a little bit higher than West did. In the division, he gave the Patriots a B minus, gave the Jets a, a B plus, and at the delight to all Bills fans, he gave the Dolphins a D, Ooh. which is the worst grade I've seen. Any other teams... <laughs> you're interested in hearing about well san diego like i said because everyone said they reached in a lot of picks uh san diego from the afc west he also gave a d said he's not a big fan of what the chargers did during draft weekend uh marquise guilt christ is the only guy who should be able to start all over an nfl secondary and gives them some nice versatility in the defensive backfield now these things are always interesting to read reviews because these guys haven't touched a field yet. So it'd be, right. it'd be interesting if these guys went back and actually like owned it. I'm not sure how many of them do. I'm not sure if West does or not, but it would be interesting for him to go back five years down the road. Maybe every five years he, or he, every year he does five years earlier. Right. The drafts yeah. He graded. It'd be, it'd be, it'd be fun to see what he said. And cause I mean, obviously everyone drafted in the first round, everyone thinks is going to be great or at least, Good. You know what, Wes was a great guy, and I think I'm going to have to send him an email. Maybe he'll come on in the next couple of weeks, kind of talk about the draft after the fact, uh, and we can ask him that question. But you can find his work, once again, at thenationalfootballpost.com. He's really easy to find. There's a special new draft 2011 section. It's got little flames next to it. Click there. <laughs> you can find all of his work. Like I said, he has grades for every team. Let's see. 
I know our boy Jimmy Brawley. Who did he tell me he was a football fan of? Do you remember, Donnie? I don't. I do not. I was going to give their grade out, but I can't remember. I know he likes the Mavericks, but I don't know who his favorite football team is. So he'll oh, have to okay. look it up on, him, on his own. But, uh, yeah, so definitely check out Wes. My number two thing. Three. Three. My number three thing. Sports Illustrated is now free on the iPad for magazine subscribers. I couldn't be more pumped about this. This news is from tech.blorge, B-L-O-R-G-E. I couldn't have pronounced that correctly, right? I don't know. I don't know what it's supposed to be. Blorgy? Blorge? Tech.blorge. Time Inc. has announced that subscribers of three of the company's magazines, Time, Fortune, and Sports Illustrated, will now be able to access content from their iPads. I'm pumped about this. I've mentioned it many times. Yeah. I'm a subscriber to SI, and I have been willing to purchase some of the episode, uh, the editions of the magazine at five bucks a clip. Yep. Uh, and this is a dream come true for me. I set it up last night. It was real easy to do. If you go to SI's website, there's a few uh, advertisements for it. You click on it. You link your account to your iPad, and boom, there it is. And you know what? I kind of thought about getting Time Magazine now just, just because to, of this, you yeah. know? And I looked in, and it's, it's actually a pretty affordable magazine. I know People Magazine does the same thing. I'm not a big People Magazine guy, but that is expensive. Have you ever tried to subscribe to People Magazine? No. Whew. Bend over. <laughs> yes. Uh, maybe you were the only one that was buying them <laughs> since they went so – Well, maybe I, they just had to. I mean – Yeah, and Apple had uh, set a deadline uh, for this kind of a thing. Oh, really? Yeah, to get all, uh, all of the uh, – ways that magazines are sold streamlined into one way okay one, one and instead of selling it they just made it free okay um so thanks i mean what a great <laughs> yeah you know si is great to us we've had tons of guys from sports illustrated on the show including this one with Stu hackle and uh do you, just, even, do you even read the magazine now then I probably won't the paper one right you know, sometimes there's uh, long articles that i like to put in the bathroom Okay, kind of right. take you know a page at a time, but yeah, I mean it's the iPad edition is great, and I'm really excited about this, and that's my third thing. Yeah, I like owning things, like I like holding things, but uh, I think we might be seeing the end of magazines and print media. I gotta think that the iPad is great for them, though. Yeah, you know it's a new revenue stream, and even though Sports Illustrated has decided not to charge for this, I wonder how many people would be willing to purchase. A subscription now Just for that because you also get the digital version you right. have both now and that might make a 20 dollars subscription which you can get in uh one year of si for around 20 to 30 dollars and at that price to get that and the digital version it might be worth it to you yeah the immediacy of the internet was probably pretty much killing newspapers and magazines as it was anyway but now that there's kindles and ipads and nooks and whatever else well you know it's interesting you say that because if we're just talking about sports sports magazines for a second before the internet was what the internet is i used to be a huge fan of sporting news sporting news okay i used to read it all the time and what sporting news is is a lot of really short pieces it's real quick it's almost set up like the usa today short short stuff Sports Illustrated, on the other hand, has always been about kind of long-form reporting, right? big features. And that works better now than sporting news 
Because most of the information that I get from the sporting news is tends old. to be a little old by the time I get it. Right. Whereas these longer form pieces are more interesting to me now. Right. Because the, the pieces of news I know, but like I know that Derek Jeter isn't batting as well. But to give me a five-page article about how Derek Jeter is interacting in the clubhouse, there's no way for me to know that. And that's where their reporting comes in. And they have such great reporters, you know, with Joe Poznanski and Lee Jenkins and John Wertheim and Luke Wynn and Stu Hackle and all the other people over there. They have such a great team of writers that it just works now. It just works. It just works. It's, it's a fantastic magazine. For, the, for that same reason you were talking about, about the Derek Jeter uh, example, I, I want to say the Buffalo News was the last newspaper in the country to offer a morning and evening edition, and they, had to do, they did away with their evening edition too because of what you just said. By the time it came out, every, it was all old news because of the Internet, because of iPads or Twitter now too. All right, interesting discussion, but that's about it for three things. Here's where we go from here. We will be right back with Stu Hackle. Let's do that one first. We'll put Stu first. We'll be right back with him. After Stu, we will be doing the book club update, a really nice interview with Jeff Duncan. And after that, we will either be back for pick four or we will be back with Zach. Sound good, Don? Sounds good. All right, let's do it. All right, we are back on the Sportscasters. Our next guest is the former NHL director of broadcasting. He was a member of the cast on the HBO documentary, The Broad Street Bullies, kind of a sore subject in Buffalo, New York here right now. He, was, he also is a blogger for the New York Times and a Sports Illustrated hockey blogger, and his name is Stu Hackle. How are you doing today, Stu? I'm good, Steve. How are you? Oh, doing very good. Uh, we've been looking forward to having you for a couple weeks here. The playoffs are in full swing. And I guess my first question is, can you ever remember an NHL first round as exciting as the one that we just finished? I do. You do? Uh, okay. Yeah. Lay it on me. <laughs> that, that's not the answer everybody expects. But in 19, I think it was 90, 92, 91 or 92, uh, there were more game, more series that went seven rounds. Uh, seven more series that went seven games, and uh, I think there were six. Six first round series went seven games, and in three of those, uh, the team came back to win had trailed three to one. So, what uh, what the Lightning did uh, happened three times in that year. Hmm. So uh, yeah, it, it, that was an amazing year. That was, I think, that was the second time the Penguins won the Stanley Cup. Okay, was that one ninety uh, two? Ninety two. Interesting. Okay, well, doesn't mean this one wasn't exciting. <laughs> yeah, it this, sure was. Yeah, it was a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're in Buffalo here, and the Sabers uh, dropped a seven game series. Obviously, missing the big opportunity with overtime in Game Six. I guess my only Sabers question for you is. Why do you think they fell a little bit short? And uh, with Terry Pagula in charge now, uh, how do you foresee their offseason? And is there a big name do you think that is out there that they can try to go for to improve the club? Well, that's, that's a lot of big questions there. I think the first thing probably has to do with 
you know, if they were able to win uh, game five, uh, game six rather, at home, you know, they had a chance to wrap it up then. I, you know, that when you lose a, a potential clinch game on home ice and then have to go into the other team's building to try to win, even though road teams are doing really well this year, I still think that's uh, a tough a tough opportunity for you. I mean, you have a chance to bring a team down, you got to take advantage of it. You know, Vancouver certainly found that out. You know, and the Flyers did it to Boston last year. You know, when you have a chance to take a team out and you don't, you're heading into trouble. Certainly, if you have a chance on home ice to do it and you don't do it, you're in trouble. And I don't think Ryan Miller was particularly good in Game 7 either. You know, he played some terrific games in that series, but he wasn't as consistent, I think, as as he could have been. There's probably some other things that, you know, we could pinpoint, but to me, those are the two things that stood out about what happened to the Sabres in, in the first round. Uh, as for what the team might do in the off season, there are certainly a lot of free agents out there. The Sabres lack some size and consistency up front. I don't know if they're going to be in the hunt for the, the Brad Richards sweepstakes or not. He's probably going to be the most sought after free agent if he gets to free agency it's altogether possible he'll decide to stay where he is it, that's come somewhat contingent on whether Dallas can complete an ownership deal and give him the kind of uh, security that he probably wants but there'll be a lot of teams out there trying to get his services you know the Rangers certainly would give it a shot I think the Leafs would give it a shot you know Terry Pagula's got a lot of money, and I really admire what he's done there in a real short amount of time and what he says his plans are for the team. You know, I've been a big fan of the Sabres for a long time when I worked in the NHL and used to go up there. The, the Knox family who owned the club back then used to treat all the people who came up from New York from the league office like we were kings, which weren't necessarily great people. <laughs> we were just guys like me. But they really treated us royally. It was, they were wonderful people. And, uh, you know, I'm still in touch with uh, Seymour Knox IV. You know, he's a good friend. And I was friendly with all the people there. It's a great organization. I have a lot of warm feelings toward it. And I really hope that they, they do well. And I hope that Terry Pagula manages to uh, to attract some free agents. And, you know, I think the fact that he signed Lindy Ruff is a big step in the right direction. I think it's a well-coached team. And I think Darcy Regier is a really good general manager. He's had no... They both had to make, uh, you know, make a bad situation as good as possible, and now I see that they'll have the resources that they need. So I'm hoping for good things from them. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. You kind of hit on two points that we've been kind of harping on on this show. One is that Ryan Miller has been absolutely inconsistent this year. Um, at times we've seen the USA Ryan Miller, and other times we've just seen a guy who had a soft goal or two, and I think that might come with fatigue. And I think the emergence of Jonas Enroth will definitely help next season kind of pre preserve Ryan Miller uh, for the long haul. And the second thing you brought up is just, you know, I, I've been a Sabres fan my whole life, and I can never remember a time where going into free agency, we have seven unrestricted free agents, and we can keep all seven if we want. They could keep four if they want, three if they want, but they don't have to lose any because of money. There might be a guy or two who won't want to stay, whatever, but they won't lose them because of money. And uh, it's definitely an interesting and fun situation for all Sabres fans. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the future. Anyway, right now we do have an exciting second round to build on our already talked about an exciting first round. And I wonder if you're surprised at all that the San Jose and Detroit series is going back to Detroit with the 0-2 hole for the, uh, for the Red Wings. I am a bit surprised at that. 
Some of it has to do with the fact that the Red Wings, the thing that they've done that really surprises me is take a lot of penalties. And they, they've really hurt themselves, and it's really unlike them. They're usually a pretty disciplined team. Uh, they hurt themselves. They shoot themselves in the foot. Uh, I, I don't know why that is. I'm not sure they know why that is, but if they don't correct it, you know, and win both of their games and take it back to San Jose for game five at 2-2, then I think that they're in a lot of trouble. If they split the games in Detroit and go back to San Jose down 3-1, I, I think that there's that scenario again where the home team has a chance to wrap up the series on home ice. So then you're expected Detroit played a really good first round and they surprised a lot of people. I think when you look at the way they played down the stretch of the regular season, they didn't really play particularly well, but they really pulled it together in the first round and showed the kind of Detroit team that a lot of people thought they were when they picked them early in the season or the preseason to be a Stanley Cup contender. They just looked outclassed against San Jose right now. They yeah. look slower to the puck. Uh, I saw somebody, might have been the TSN breakdown, uh, the video that I thought was pretty illuminating. They were showing video of the play along the boards. and There's a lot of good board play going on there that benefits San Jose. The Sharks like to play that style. They're more of a grinding team. The Red Wings like the open ice. San Jose is winning that battle. They're dictating the style of play. They're the ones who are pushing the game to the boards making the Red Wings grind it out there, and they're not winning those battles. So as a consequence, San Jose has the puck a lot more. The Red Wings are chasing the game a lot more. They can't put their game plan into motion, and it's not working for them right now. They have to figure out a way to do that. Mike Babcock's a really good coach. If anybody can figure it out, it's him, but he's got a big task in front of him. You know, San Jose is an interesting team because it seems like sometimes they don't realize that the playoffs have started until it's three or four games in. And I think the big wake-up call for them this year was being down uh, 4 to nothing against the Kings and being able to come back and win that crazy game. And now it just seems like they're on a roll, and it seems like they have a lot of depth at forward, and uh, goaltending seems a little bit better than it's been in the playoffs for them in the past. Is this a Sharks team that can really make a very deep run and that could maybe be set up to accomplish what previous Sharks teams were unable to? Yeah, I think this team's a little different. They had a terrific uh, stretch run the last two months of the season. In January, they were just floundering. They weren't really very good at all. They turned the corner and they started to do some things. They mixed up their line combinations a bit, which Tom McClellan does a lot anyway. He's really good at, at using his roster. I know, you know he was a protege of Babcock's, and he knows how to how to uh, coach against Detroit pretty well because he knows their personnel and knows their system. Uh, and I think one of the things that has to be remembered was they beat Detroit in five games last year. Yep. And so there's a lot of confidence. You know, some teams go up against Detroit, and you know they're a little intimidated by all the world class skill that they have on that team, and which is, you know, it's terrific. They, you know. Man for man, it's tougher to come up with a better roster in the NHL than that. But I think some age is getting to the Red Wings, perhaps. They don't seem as fast as they were, although younger guys like Ablocator and and Helm, Eves, Dan Cleary's not young, but he's still pretty fast. And nobody's better than Pavel Batsuk. I mean, the guy's still the best player in hockey. But again, you know, when the Sharks turn their game around, they, they kind of figured out what worked for them. 
and they're able to play a real consistent brand of hockey. Had really the last two months of the season. And they've been able to carry it into the playoffs. The Kings really gave them a tough time. I think probably because the Kings are a defensive-oriented team and the Sharks made a lot of mistakes of their own. But they, they corrected them. I'm not sure they really took the Kings seriously, but they're really taking Detroit seriously. Right. And they're playing like it. The other uh, matchup in the West is pretty interesting. Nashville, obviously, in the second round for the very first time. And Vancouver, they dodged the bullet of bullets. I don't... I wouldn't want to have been Vancouver if they didn't find a way to win that game seven, but of course they did. Uh, now we're in round two. Nashville found their way to a split. How do you see this series playing out? Do you think Vancouver is going to be still a little bit shell-shocked from round one? Do you think Nashville can kind of sneak up on them and steal this thing? Well, they didn't look shell-shocked in game one of that series against the Predators. No. <laughs> I mean, the Game 7 against the Blackhawks was the best game I saw all year. I mean, it was just a terrific hockey game. Uh, and whatever, you know, they were doing, they continued doing it in Game 2. And in Game 1, rather, of the, of the next round against Nashville, they played a really good game, but they couldn't score. And some of it was Pekka Rene, who's, you know, right now maybe the best goalie in hockey. Yeah. He certainly was terrific the last two games there. But the Canucks have, you know, their own faults. I mean, they're really missing Manny Malhotra for big face-offs in their own zone, penalty killing, stabilizing in defensive situations, and leadership. Uh, you know, he's not going to be playing in this playoff, and hopefully he comes back in the future, but it's right. unknown. But I think he's, you know, they miss him. I also think that, you know, they get... Roberto Luongo's inconsistency is bothering them. You know, he he had a real bad goal he gave up in, in, in the last couple of minutes. I think it was just over a minute to go when Nashville tied up game two. Yeah, it's almost a fluke goal from behind well, the Well, you know, it was, it was a great play by Ryan Suter. I mean, he's really an underrated player. You know, Suter and, and, uh, and, his, and Shea Weber are Weber, yeah. terrific defense cannon. You know, maybe next to Keith and Seabrook, the best in the NHL. And Suter doesn't get the kind of acclaim that Shea Weber does because Weber has got the big shot. He was a big player on Team Canada in the Olympics. He hits hard and you know he's a real commanding presence on the ice. But Suter is really good. Suter's had a terrific all-around game of his own. He made a terrific play to just take over the game, get the puck into the zone, and take it into the corner. Just he wouldn't be denied. He kind of reminded me of Jonathan Tate. I was just going to say that, yeah. And, you know, he took a a wild shot from the corner. But, you know, that's the book on Luongo. If you shoot a puck at his feet from a sharp angle, there's a chance he's going to blow it. I mean, that's what, you know, shooters in the National Hockey League know. And that's just what he did, and Luongo lost it. And he got tangled up in his skates and paddled between his legs. However, it got in there and got in there. And then uh, the Predators forced to play at the blue line to win it in the second overtime period. And I think that this could be a long series. You know, when you go to Nashville, you're really – the Predators are excellent on home ice. They don't lose too many games at home. Mm-hmm. And they have a terrific crowd, which a lot of people don't know about. They had – 13 or 14 sellouts down the stretch of the regular season, which is not the image most people have of Nashville. 
They think nobody's at those games and they're wrong. And they've sold out their playoff games so far too, and the crowd is into it, and they know what they're talking about. They're not these hillbillies and country music clangers <laughs> who you know just are there to see and be seen. They're a really good cocky crowd, and they know the game. And they've taken to this team quite well, and it's quite an it's a loud building. So certainly they get loud in Vancouver, but you know they'll be loud against them this time. And then, you know Nashville's going to be tough on home ice. So I think this could be a deep series. This could go. This isn't going to be easy for Vancouver. When Vancouver's on its game, they're great. They're fun to watch, and they can make a lot of things happen. They're good plays are no one's spectacular on defense, but they have a very steady defense core, and it's six deep. Although I think with Salo out there making some adjustments. But, you know, they have a lot of good things going for them. You know, not, the Sedins haven't produced, and they're going to have to turn it around in this round. Um, they haven't really done very much since the middle of the Chicago series. And yeah. they have some hills to climb if they want to continue. In the Eastern Conference, uh, it's kind of interesting. Tampa Bay took both of the games in Washington and really looks strong and, and just seems to get seems to be getting stronger as the playoffs go on. And, we knew scoring goals would be an issue for Washington in the playoffs, and other than seven, they haven't scored in, in large amounts in this playoffs. Are you worried about Washington here? Sure. Yep. I mean, I'm, I'm worried about Washington, and I'm happy for Tampa Bay. I, you know, I think the Caps have never had playoff success in their current incarnation. Uh, they have a lot of great players. They've done really everything that they can do. They've changed the way they play. They're a more defensive-oriented team. They didn't play that way in game one. I think that's one of the things that hurt them. They got impatient. They tried to break through the defenses of of uh, Tampa. Of, of Tampa, and I think it, it cost them. And you know, last night I think they stuck more to their game plan. But again, you know, there's a, a late goal you know, that by Ovechkin, and if that doesn't happen, that game is over in regulation. Right. What do you think about Ovechkin kind of stepping out and saying we're going to go there and win two games? you think that is appropriate bravado, or you think that it's him just trying to take the distraction away from the team and maybe put it on himself? Well, I think he probably really believes that. I think they know they have to do that. Uh-huh. And it's not impossible that they could. Nashville, I mean, Tampa rather has got some issues. You know, they have some injuries right now. Simone Gagne, who you know, has played pretty well for them in the playoffs, is looks like he's got a concussion, so he won't be there. Uh, and I think Pablo Cabina looks like he's out too. So that's two very important forwards. And, uh, you know, at a certain point, you're going to start wearing out the guys that you have. And I know that Marty San Luis is not going to stop playing, but, boy, the guy got racked in the face at least twice yesterday and maybe once in game one, too. Yep. Losing teeth, he's losing face. Facial hair, probably. He's getting, <laughs> you know, he's, he's getting racked up pretty bad. So, you know, actually, you know, one of the things that the Caps do now is they play a more physical style, and I think they're going to have to continue to do that if they want to get out of this round. They're going to continue to need good goaltending. I think they're going to continue to have to play that grinding out game, and I think that they're going to have to respond to a, phys- a physical and, and real smart defensive style of hockey that Guy Boucher has. Tampa playing. I think it's a great series. I, whatever happens, I think it's going to... I like both of those games. Some people don't like it because Tampa plays a, 
have them playing a defensive style. You know, they're no they thought it was a run and gun team because of all the offensive weapons they have. Right. But that one three one system Boucher employs is pretty good and not too many teams know how to play against it. And it's very unusual. You know, when you play a different style than everybody else, it gives you an advantage and he does. The last so, series yeah. in the Eastern Conference is uh, Philadelphia and Boston. Obviously we talked a little bit about Philadelphia off the top, but what is Philadelphia going to do with goaltending? Can they just keep going game to game and changing goalie to goalie, or is it eventually just going to catch up to them? That's tough to say. I think that one way or the other it could catch up to them because none of their goalies are any good. Yeah. I mean, Boucher is probably the best of the three, but I wouldn't say that he's you know, in the top echelons of goaltending in the NHL. Uh, Leighton uh, is not very strong, and Bobrovsky, I think, is still feeling his way in the NHL. He's a rookie, but, you know, he certainly started the playoffs very shaky, and he hasn't really had, except for coming in in relief in the last game, uh, he hasn't had much playoff experience. In fact, no experience at all in North American postseason hockey. So it's all new to him. Uh the Flyers, though, played a terrible game in front of their goaltenders. They didn't take the body. Their defensive zone coverage was brutal. They didn't establish a forecheck with any purpose, any consistency in game one. They didn't show up prepared to play at all on their own ice. And the Bruins, who I think had a real good series against Canadians and you know had to raise the level of their game to do so, Kept that level when they played game one against the Flyers, and it was really a one-sided game as a, as a consequence. You had a team that really wanted to play, and a team that didn't look like he was even awake. So the Flyers really have to turn it around if they want to get into the series. Otherwise, it could be that same situation where they go home, where the Bruins go home with a 2 nothing lead. And the Bruins have some demons there they want to exercise yeah. from having... Oh, fallen after trailing three nothing in the series last year. Absolutely. Well, the sportscasters are here. We're talking to Stu Hackwell. You can find his uh, red light blog on si.com at nhl-red-light.si.com. You can also follow him on Twitter. He is at Stu Hackel, H-A-C-K-E-L. One last question for you, considering that the fact that you were previously the NHL Director of Broadcasting. What do you think about the new television package? And uh, were you surprised at how much the NHL was able to get for their television? And do you think they made the right decision to go exclusive with NBC and Versus and not include ESPN in any way? Uh, I think it's a good deal for the NHL, obviously. The money is good. Uh, it's more than they've ever gotten before. And I think for the teams, it's probably about... Five to six million dollars a team, uh, which is good money compared to what they had been making from U.S. television, which was substantially less. So it's good for the NHL in that way. I think it's good because I don't believe ESPN, although they have a lot of brand recognition and they're considered the worldwide leader in sports, uh, I don't think that they brought all of that to bear when it came to the NHL. I think that they, when they had the NHL contract, they didn't really promoted as well as they could have. They didn't do much with the games on Sports Center. I think that as they developed more inventory with baseball, football, and basketball, uh, they shuffled hockey off as a, uh, an afterthought. 
And in this case, I think something different is happening with NBC and Versus, where they're really going to make hockey and the NHL the centerpiece of their coverage. So I think it'll it'll be fine. I think that it'll that the NHL and and NBC and Versus or whatever they end up calling Versus will be a good deal. Right. For hockey, uh, I'm, I, I'm, I think it was a, uh, beneficial for everybody involved. Uh, I know a lot of people thought that, gee, if you're on ESPN, it's going to make everything better. But the NHL was on ESPN for a long time, and the ratings only got worse. And they gave the NHL less and less exposure on their channels. They kept throwing it to ESPN2 and other places. And uh, I'm not sure the NHL and ESPN, as good as ESPN is, I don't think there's really a place for it because they just have too much. They have too much inventory. So yeah. I think this makes more sense for hockey, and I think it'll it'll do well where it's going. Uh, one last thing I did forget, and that is headshots. Uh, you wrote a blog earlier about the headshot theater set for round two, and I think the NHL has really backed themselves into a corner with how inconsistent they've been with the suspensions and creating a huge gray area and maybe a little confusion for the players on the ice. What do you think is the deal with headshots? Where do you think the NHL goes from here? And uh, how, how do you think we get to a point where these hits are eliminated from the game? You're never going to eliminate contact to the head in, in hockey entirely. It's just not impossible. I think what you have to do is create conditions and create rules whereby you punish guys who intentionally go after the head. And that's got to be a judgment call on the ice. And if they miss it on the ice, it's got to be uh, taken up a supplementary discipline with suspensions and fines. And they have to be a lot longer than one game, two games, three games. If you really do want it out of the game, then you have to forcefully punish it on the ice and afterward, after the incident happens with suspensions and fines. Uh, and there's a lot of confusion about what constitutes a headshot under the rule book, there's a lot of discussion about what might happen in the offseason strengthening these rules. I think we're really going to have to wait and see how the rule book is amended with regard to hits to the head based on the last general manager's meeting they had in March. But they promised that they were going to do things to make it uh, um, a more a punishable offense. And we'll see. Uh, you know, I, a lot of times the NHL sets is going to do something, and then when it comes out in the wash, it doesn't look particularly clean. So we'll have to wait and see how all this goes. I, I, I think that it's what well, the, the fear that the league says it has, and I believe it's a legitimate fear, is that if you start punishing every bit of contact to the head, you'll get players afraid to throw body checks. I think there's some truth to that because the game is faster, and it's guys just, you know, are careening in amazing speeds. The puck is faster. And it's just a lot harder to, to account for how players play each other. Yeah. And, it, you know, a lot, of time, a lot of it has to do with, you know, the changing of the rules. The fact that players, uh, defenders can't uh, hold up four checkers anymore. Lots of it, it's pretty complicated, and the league has gone over that. And I think they're really afraid that you're going to take hitting out of the game if you make the rules on hits to the head too strong. I would counter that by saying that, you know, you can tell when a hit to the head is deliberate. Mm -hmm. 
You know, but I think it's not hard to figure out. You can tell when somebody is targeting the head. I think the equipment is still too dangerous. The head, the shoulder pads are very hard. The elbow pads are hard. The boards in some cases are hard, but I think it has to do a lot more with player behavior than it does with equipment or the arenas. And I think that the players have to, unfortunately, have to feel the wrath of the NHL a lot more strongly before they stop targeting each other's heads. All right, Stu Hackle, thank you very much for joining us on the Sportscasters. Again, you can find his work on sportsillustrated.com, and, of course, you can find him on Twitter at Stu Hackle. Thank you very, very much for your time today. We appreciate Thanks, it. Steve. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye now. Bye. guest is a sports columnist for the Times-Picayune of New Orleans and has covered the Saints for the newspaper since 2000. He has been published in the Best American Sports Writing Series and he is the author of the Sportscasters Book of the Month from Bags to Riches, How the New Orleans Saints and the People of Their Hometown Rose from the Depths Together. His name is Jeff Duncan. Jeff, welcome to the Sportscasters. Good to be here, Steve. How are you doing? I'm doing really good. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. We talked to you last month. We talked a little bit about your article in the uh, Best American Sports Writing Series, but we kind of saved all the Saints stuff for today. And uh, since then, there's been even more Saints stuff to talk about. So I feel like this is going to be a pretty busy interview. Let's start with the draft. Personally, I was giddy. I was doing uh, doing some live blogging, and uh, when the Saints picked in their spot, and Cameron Jordan was the pick. I was pleased with that. I I thought it definitely was, uh, it it made a lot of sense, but there was part of me that just really wanted to get Mark Ingram in the draft, and I wrote on my blog, you know, let's just trade back in for fun, and uh, sure enough, we did, and even the later rounds seemed to work out, and Wes Bunting from the National Football Post, who was on last week, gave our draft an A+. Can you remember a Saints draft that just seemed to work out and kind of just play as well as it did then last week? Not one that uh, it, it, on, the, on the surface up front seemed to answer all of their questions. You know, usually in the draft, uh, you don't simultaneously accomplish two things, getting the best player available and getting them at the positions you need. Lots of times we've seen the Saints in the past get a guy that's the best player available on the board, like a Will Smith, uh, but he might be at a position they're already stacked at. That's what happened with Deuce McAllister and right. Will Smith in those years. But this year they seem to get the best players available, and they're exactly at the positions they need. The only thing I can think of like this was when they were able to get Malcolm Jenkins a couple of years ago. Uh, but this seemed to happen to them all the way throughout the draft, and it's really hard to find fault with any of their picks. I almost liked every one of them. Now, we all know we've got to see what happens down the road. These things have to play out, but... 
on the surface up front, it looks like a, a really a, a no-brainer situation for them. I think they're addressing all those problems that they had last year. And even though they went 11 and 5, we all could see there were some glaring issues on this team that needed to be addressed. And I think they took a big step toward that this past weekend. Do you think? Do you think that the Falcons doing what they did early and trading to get Julio Jones? And the draft seemed to be going good for Tampa Bay. Do you think that forced the Saints' hand at all, or do you think that they were just kind of just going along and just you know covering their own draft and their own draft board and kind of not worrying about what the other teams in the division were doing? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think it had any effect at all. I mean, the Saints are aggressive by nature. They've this is the fourth time now they traded up uh, in the first round, uh, the third time under uh, Mickey Loomis, and so I think that they just saw a chance to get another player, and I think more importantly, they understand, and Mickey Loomis said this the other day, that their window of opportunity is now. They're not rebuilding. They, they don't wor- they're not worrying about the future with this team, and they know Drew Brees is playing at an elite level in his prime. Their roster is stacked with players in their prime, and uh, they've got to win now. They've got a chance to win another Super Bowl. They're going to go for it, and so they, they realize that addressing that running back situation and finding maybe a bell cow back, the guy they've been missing since Deuce McAllister uh, retired, was critical to, uh, a critical piece to the puzzle. And I applaud them for going after Ingram. I think he's the kind of guy uh, that you can count on game to game uh, to be your bell cow back there. And, and they, we've all seen what, what's happened as they tried to patch work in other backs there. And that's, uh, I think, going to help their defense as well because uh, the defensive deficiencies they had last year, a lot of it, Fatigue. Uh, yeah. It could be attributed to the lack of a running game. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, Atlanta sure did pay an arm and a leg to get Julio Jones, but I thought the price obviously was a lot less. Uh, it's a lot smaller of a move, but I, you know, I thought the Saints got a great deal to move back into that first round too. You know, I mean, they didn't lose a first round pick; they just chose to use it this year for a certain guy that they wanted instead of you know. Who knows what the pick will be next year and who will be available. And uh, only having to give up that second rounder as well. I, I just thought it was a great deal as well. I thought they really really found a bargain. Yeah, I, I think you could look at it a number of ways. But you're right. They didn't lose a first-round pick because they got another one uh, from the Patriots this year. So in essence, they gave up a second-round pick. And you could argue that this year's second-round pick uh, is really about the same as what they would have gotten with that extra third-round pick they got from the Jamal Brown trade last year. When they they were able to use this year uh, a third an extra third-round pick, and almost every draft analyst I talked with thought this was about a 25-player draft for first-round talent, and then it dropped off into another pool of about 50 players graded equally, uh, second and third-round talent. So really. Uh, in all likelihood, the player they would have gotten at the, at, with their second-round pick probably isn't going to have been much better than Johnny Patrick or Marquez Wilson who they got in the third round. So, in essence, uh, you know, I think the Saints did their homework and understood that every draft is different, and picks are different from year to year depending on the quality of the draft. Yeah, I mean, I, I was giddy about it. I think it worked out great. Now let's look at fitting these players in on the team. Obviously, uh, Cameron Jordan can uh, play where Will Smith played and Will Smith can move to the other side or they can uh, keep it as is and just fill Cameron Jordan on the other side of the defensive end. 
Uh, a little bit more complicated at running back. Obviously, Reggie Bush didn't seem very thrilled about the pick. His contract situation is still up in the air. Chris Ivory's there. Pierre Thomas is there. Certainly, it goes from a position where we were just trying to find players like uh, Jones that we brought in last year to being kind of loaded at running back. H- how do you think it plays out on the field next year, if there is an extra? Well, I, I think, Steve, that's the most compelling off-season um, situation we're going to follow once the camp starts is how they can divide up these carries. I mean, these are all big-time talents just about in this backfield. And, uh, you know, I really think that uh, we've got an unanswered situation with Reggie Bush. But the story that came out of Saints camp the other day was they want him back, but clearly his camp uh, was disturbed by the by the selection of Mark Ingram, and they really hold the cards here. I mean, in essence, Reggie Bush is a free agent. They're not going to pay him $12 million next year, mm-hmm. uh, and, and he knows that, and Joel Siegel, his agent, knows that. And it really comes down to are they willing to renegotiate a deal with them? They really can hold the Saints' feet to the fire and force them to cut him, and he can find another opportunity somewhere else around the league. And it really, it all comes down to that. And I, I think what we saw coming out of Reggie Bush's camp uh, during the draft after that first-round selection of Ingram uh, should be a disturbing sign for Saints fans and fans of Reggie Bush because that indicates to me they've had a change of heart. Do the Saints need Reggie Bush? Well, I particularly don't think they do. Their, their numbers over the years are better without him than with him. And there's a, I think there's a lot of mythology about Reggie Bush. You know, we always hear about how he's this home run hitter, that he can go the distance anytime he touches the ball. But the fact of the matter is he doesn't, and he hasn't since he's been in the league. I think uh, if you add up his total number of plays over 40 yards, I think it's like a handful in five years. He's not. He's proven to not be a Barry Sanders type home run hitter. You hear a lot of people forgive him for his uh, negative plays because they they say they are offset by the big plays that he's able to to uh, you know put together. But the fact of the matter is he's he's never put together any seventy and eighty yard touchdown plays in his career. And so I I actually think that they can survive without him. That said, I do think he adds an element to their team. Uh, you know, in in the passing game in particular, that's useful. But they have so many weapons that it's not really an indictment on Reggie Bush. It's just the fact that they can get by with anybody without anybody on this offense. You know, when Marcus Colston got hurt a year ago, they survived just fine. When Shockey's been down, they survived fine. When Pierre Thomas was down, they just have so many different weapons available. The only indispensable part is Drew Brees. You know what frustrates me about Reggie Bush, and I wonder if you agree, is it seems like we, we've only seen him at full speed about six or seven times in his career. And you can, you can look back and remember the plays, whether it's the punt return in the playoffs against uh, Arizona or the punt return against Tampa Bay his rookie year or a couple other plays we can think of where he finally reaches that extra gear and he is faster than everyone. But it seems like he doesn't know how to get to that gear and he's not never been that comfortable on the field, and that's where the kind of dancing comes in. And you know, there's just something like he just can. Ne- he's never at full speed. I feel like, and it just drives me nuts. Well, you know, there are there are instincts in running the ball. I talked with Deuce McAllister about this at length, and there is just an inherent ability to have the vision to see 
cracks to create scenes, to use your feet and to use your eyes, uh, setting up your blocks. And I have not seen that from Reggie Bush. As, as impressed as I was with him during his career at Southern Cal, that was college. And you just do not see the, the instinctive type running, the inherent ability it, you see in a player like an Emmett Smith who just knows how to run at the NFL level. I'm really eager to see Mark Ingram because I think he has that. And I think he's the prototypical kind of NFL back. He doesn't necessarily test out like a Reggie Bush would at a combine-type setting, but he just knows how to run the ball. Uh, and I think uh, he's the, really, what they've really been lacking since Deuce McAllister's been there. Do you think today we got a little bit more proof that Drew Brees is the best leader in the league? He got 40 players to show up during the lockout, including one, two, three, four players, not even under contract to the team, to show up, work out together. Nobody else in the league is doing this, right? I mean, this is just Drew Brees being Drew Brees and putting this together and getting everyone to show up at Tulane University for a workout, right? Well, some other teams are doing it, but it's not on that. It's not nearly with those type of numbers. We're seeing, you know, a dozen players here, maybe several players at other at other markets. I know out in California, Mark Sanchez is a group of Jets together, and it's it's about 15 players, which is pretty impressive for a young player like Sanchez to be able to get that done. Uh, but we we don't see anything quite like this in numbers. And the thing I was impressed about today was. It's players across all spectrums. It's it's offense, defense, special teams. It's players under contract, players not under contract. Uh, it's guys that um, have been in the league forever, and, and then rookies and practice squad guys. Uh, so we, we're seeing every aspect of this team, and I, there's no question that's a testament to the force of Drew Brees and his personality and leadership ability uh, that he's able to get that kind of commitment from the team. As, as John Stinchcomb told me today when when Drew Brees calls, you pick up the phone, and uh, even veteran guys uh, like John Stinchcomb are there, um, and guys like you said, Darren Sharper is a 14-year veteran who's not even under contract, and he's out there with the team. Uh, there's no question about it. This is a Drew Brees um, orchestrated event. You were there today. I was following your tweets. Tell me, be my eyes and ears. What 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 was it like? What was the atmosphere like? What did they do exactly? Did anything stand out? Well, it, it's very similar to what they do at, a, at an off-season conditioning program. I mean, it's not anything that uh, was really earth-shattering. They're, right now, the earth, this is the first week of uh, their program, and these mirroring the program after what the Saints actually do in their own organized programs. And so they're, they're just starting out right now doing conditioning work, Trying to get their you know conditioning back under them, and then they will slowly progress to on-field kind of football-specific uh, position drills. They'll do some route running with receivers, things like that. But that's going to be a few weeks down the road after they get the conditioning down. So right now they're doing a lot of weight training and conditioning, and um, uh, it's very similar to what we see in the off-season program. He brought in Todd Durkin, his own personal trainer from San Diego. And he's kind of organizing the workouts right now. I think Drew will probably take the lead once uh, Durkin goes back home. Uh, so, you know, it, it's just Breeze, again, trying to create some normalcy in what has been a, a very abnormal offseason. Is Drew Breeze paying for this? I mean, does Tulane, has Tulane donated the field and the facilities? Or, I mean, this has got to 
costs money, right? I mean, is the are the forty guys splitting it? Is Breeze paying for it? Obviously, the team can't be involved, right? No, I think Breeze is putting a lot of the bill. The, the facility itself is being basically donated. There's no charge on the facility use. Okay. Uh, but where there is going to be some charges are uh, the Tulane uh, Sports Medicine Group that's kind of overseeing this thing. Uh, their, their staff members are going to have to be uh, reimbursed, and, and, and Breeze is also going to pay, as I understand it, for a lot of the young players on the team who really can't afford these kind of expenses for lodging and insurance costs. Um, he's going to end up paying for, for a lot of those guys out of his own pocket. And, again, that's leadership Incredible. defined right there. I mean, yeah. there's no better way to ingratiate yourself to your teammates than to dig in your own pocket and uh, pay for some of those things. I don't know, Jeff. That pumps me up. The whole the whole thing, about it, it just makes me so excited. Like, it, it's, just, mm, it's just hard to believe. I mean, could you ever imagine Aaron Brooks getting this together? No, and, and, and you know, it's not an indictment on Aaron Brooks because no. very few quarterbacks anywhere would do this. You know, I, I think very few players would do it. Uh, but it's, it's again, what, what I was talking with Rick Dixon, Tulane's athletic director today about was just, it really goes back to uh, what I can, the only word I would use would be miraculous uh, set of circumstances that led to Breeze coming to New Orleans. When you look back on what he's done in these five years and his makeup and character, uh, it's amazing that the Saints were able to get a guy like that uh, at a time when they so desperately needed a leader in this organization and in this community. Uh, he really was almost heaven sent. Uh, and you look back on it, it's, just, it's, it's almost miraculous that it's only the Dolphins and Saints were bidding on this guy. Yeah, <laughs> it's, um, it's unbelievable. One more question before we get to the book. Let's say the lockout ends here. And uh, it's hopefully it's going to end at some point, I suppose. I can't imagine it going on forever. But when it does end, and the Saints' off season begins, uh, now that they have the pieces in place for the draft, what what do the Saints need to do to get ready for the season? I would think that Roman Harper would be important. Uh, signing him, Bushrod, I, I assume would be very important. But what what is left to do? What is what does uh, Mickey Loomis and Coach Payton have to do? Uh, to get the 53-man roster that they want kind of in shape? Well, they've got a ton of work to do. I mean, this team has a – depending on what happens with the CBA and assuming we go to a normal um, free agent system where four, player, four years uh, allows you to become an unrestricted free agent, the Saints are going to have close to two dozen players that they've got to try and get under contract. And a lot of these guys are core players, uh, Roman Harper – uh, you know, Jermon Bushride, Lance Moore, David Thomas, I and mean, I can go on and on. They've got to get those guys signed and back in the fold. They've obviously got to address some issues uh, cap-wise with a player like Reggie Bush, with perhaps Randall Gay, maybe even Devery Henderson. Now, there's a lot of issues on this team cap-wise because they're probably going to try and rework a deal soon with Drew Brees that's going to dwarf any other contract in Saints history. And to get him under under wraps, uh, they're going to have to do some, you know, cutting. They've already done that with Jeremy Shockey, and I think they're going to have to do some more of that down the road. Uh, so there's a lot of work left to be done. But in speaking with Loomis the other day, he's pretty confident they're going to get these guys back. He's had informal discussions with the representatives of all these guys, and uh, he feels confident that they've got the money to get it done and the willpower, I think. It sounds like the most of the Saints players... It, 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 let's face it, if you're here working out 
you're probably interested in being back a part of this team. So I think a lot of those guys, uh, really, it's just a matter of uh, ironing out the details on the contracts. Other than the guys that are on the team, do you think there's maybe not a specific player, but is is there a specific position that they would still like to try to add a player? Or do you think the addition of Sean Rogers and the players that they brought in in the draft and just taking care of their own players is about all that they're going to do this offseason? Well, I, I think there's two positions that are possibilities. I think the strong fat linebacker position uh, where Martez Wilson's going to start out and potentially maybe Scott Shanley could be brought back to compete with him, but that's a position that they could use some help at, I think, and maybe would look at to a veteran on the market that probably wouldn't cost too much. Uh, Chad Greenway, for instance, is out there, and he's a good, solid player that kind of fits the Saints mold. And I also think maybe fullback, and that's, again, that's become a, a kind of a dying breed, but Heath Evans, who was out at practice again today, seems to be toward the end of his career. I could see them maybe wanting to get a younger player at that position, maybe a, a guy with fresher legs uh, that can also cut the ball the back. So that's a critical position in some ways in the Saints scheme that they have that position to do a lot of things. So it wouldn't surprise me as well if they look for free agency market for fullback. But otherwise, I think this team's pretty well set. I think that Rodgers signing was big. It allowed yeah. them to concentrate on defensive end and free agency, I mean in the draft, and also on linebacker to eliminate a position of need for them. Okay, this month, uh, myself, my co-host, and uh, a few of our listeners, including uh, we gave one of the books that you sent me away. We're going to give another one away today, but we gave one to a guy named Jimmy Rowley, and he read the book. He's got a couple questions I have written down here for you. But we've all been reading Bra- Bags to Riches together, and it's really been a delight. It's a fantastic book. And I'm going to say this first. Uh, uh, last off season, Drew Brees, Coach Payton, and yourself – each came out with books, and I've read all three of them, and I think they all have their own spot. But I, I think this one is probably the most honest, the most kind of candid, and kind of the most in-depth. I think there's a lot of coach speak in Coach Payton's book, and there's a lot of kind of protecting his teammates in Drew Brees' book. But I think yours is the one that really kind of takes no prisoners and just kind of tells the story as the story is. And we've been emailing back and forth. Uh, a little bit as we've gotten close to this. And one of the emails you sent me kind of was interesting. You said that the Saints organization really isn't a big fan of the book, and that's because of a little bit of revisionist history that they're doing in regards to the San Antonio chapter. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the San Antonio chapter and what the Saints don't like about it exactly? Well, you know, that was a very sensitive uh, time for the organization. I mean, there was obviously a lot of uncertainty with uh, the Katrina, um, post-Katrina um, season, when the, when the team relocated temporarily to San Antonio, there was a lot of stuff going on over in San Antonio with with uh, reports from the San Antonio Express News, very good reporting over there by their staff, on the Saints' potential interest in relocating there permanently. And, uh, you know, there, there was so much going on at the time here in New Orleans. I was actually covering news and covering the hurricane itself and the, and the aftermath and the, you know, the, of the crisis as it unfolded. So my mind really was not on the Saints at the time, and my, my attention was directly on you know, the unfolding crisis in the city. And I think a lot of people felt that way. A lot of people's attentions turned away from the Saints, and for right, rightly so, had priorities on other things like their, their livelihoods and their family and, 
getting getting their situations of personal lives back in order here. And all this stuff was going on over in San Antonio at the time. And, uh, you, you know, there was, it was a very difficult situation for the league to handle. It was an unprecedented situation for the league. And I think the real hero in that situation was Paul Tagliabue, the commissioner at the time, uh, who had the big-picture vision to understand they at least had to bring the Saints back to New Orleans and give the city a chance to show it could support the team. And I think there was a large faction of the Saints organization. And in defense of them, they didn't really know what was going on back over in New Orleans. None of them were here. They were all in San Antonio. Uh, but I think some of their actions were, were fairly egregious at the time because they didn't take the time to do the research on, on New Orleans and uh, I think kind of gave up on the city uh, quicker than they should have considering that this team had, been, you know, had received the support of the city and the fan base for four decades. And, and, and I think that people forget going into that Katrina uh, season or going into the, se- the 2005 season, they forgot just how tenuous everything was leading into that. I mean, there was negotiations between the state and states that had gotten broken off by, by Tom Benson. It was very acrimonious, his relationship with uh, Governor Kathleen Blanco at the time. Uh, they you know, begun informal talks with not only San Antonio officials, but Albuquerque, New Mexico. I mean, just crazy stuff was going on. And, and the Saints will tell you to this day that they never once uh, were serious about any of this, that this was all just negotiation ploys, ploys to get a better deal from the state of Louisiana. And if that is, in fact, true, then shame on them. I mean, that's even worse uh, than the actual, you know, serious interest in relocating the team, in my mind, because they were preying on the fears and insecurities of the fan base and the people in New Orleans at a time when really they could not, they should not be put in, put through something like that. And uh, so I think that the Saints now, uh, that everything has worked out, that the team has gotten back here and the, and the team the organization is only better on the field than it's ever been. It's better off the field. It has a new stadium, basically. It has a better deal with the state than it's ever had long-term security. This team now is probably one of the 10 or 12 uh, best-funded teams in the entire NFL, yet it's in the second smallest market in the league. Uh, So at a time when everything has worked out, now they're looking back on that and I think embarrassed by their actions and trying to burnish Tom Benson's legacy as he goes into the the twilight of his career here. They want to enhance his legacy because they know that that is a black eye on his uh, on his legacy. One really cool thing about the book is that the angle you take is kind of about how the Saints and the city kind of came up together. Now, I remember when the, the decision was made to rebuild the Superdome, to keep the Saints in New Orleans, there was a lot of talk about whether that money should have been spent elsewhere on schools or some of the other things that, that um, were of great need at the time after Katrina. But they decided to make a commitment to keep the team there. Can you kind of explain to people who aren't in New Orleans, who aren't Saints fans, how important the team coming back and playing that game against the Falcons in 2006, how important that was to kind of the rebirth of the city and, um, you know, just why, why, you know, there's so many skeptics out there saying, why would you spend this money on football? Forget football. There's more to life than football. You should spend this money here or there or there. 
But it turns out, in retrospect, it was money well spent. Can you kind of explain to outsiders why? I know you touch on this in the book, so. Well, let's face it. I mean, this was more important than football. I mean, the Superdome is a huge economic engine for the city of New Orleans. I mean, it's more than just a football team plays there. That that building hosts concerts, conventions. Uh, it's worth, uh, you know, millions in, in revenue uh, to the city of New Orleans in the state of Louisiana. So it was more than just a football team. You had to get the building rebuilt, and, and it really was apples and oranges. The money that was going to fund schools and hospitals was not the same um, war chest that was being dipped into by the state to help um, the, the, the facility. And really, when you go back and look at it and look at the funding of the Superdome renovation, um, well over half that money came from FEMA, uh, from the federal government. So the very little of this money was coming out of state coffers, and it only made sense to rebuild uh, the, the building when you had the time and the, and the uh, when, when you actually had the opportunity to do it. And back then there was a, a specific period of time after the storm that was going to allow uh, the state and FEMA to work together to get this thing funded. So time was of the essence. You had to get the building rebuilt, and the NFL, this is where they stepped in. They understood they could not afford to keep the Saints in San Antonio for another season. They could not afford for Tom Benson to come further entrenched over there and become almost like a barnacle in the city. They had to get him uprooted, get the team back here, not only for the good of the city, but for the good of the league. Otherwise, they were going to have a more difficult time getting the team back here. So all these things played into it. It was a very complex, convoluted, a nuanced uh, decision to get this team back here. And, and that really directly influenced why the Hornets stayed in Oklahoma City another year. That's a real big misconception among people and fans. They all think that the Saints came back here and the Hornets stayed an extra year when actually the Hornets wanted to come back, but the league and city and everybody involved thought it would be best to get the Saints back here because they were fearful that they would never come back and to let them stay another year. So in in essence, the Hornets were asked to stay an extra year so the team could get the Saints, so the league, the state could get the Saints back here. And um, you know, going back to what you're talking about, there, this was a big thing symbolically for the people of New Orleans. I mean, anything the Saints were no different in some ways than any of the other cultural, custom, customary gems of the city: Jazz Fest, uh, Mardi Gras, the restaurants and, and the, the cuisine. Everything in the city that people feared would be gone. That you know, there was all these ominous reports that New Orleans was never going to be the same, and people began to grasp onto the vestiges of old New Orleans. Anything that was that was a part of their pre-Katrina lives that they could restore and help them kind of get back to normalcy, they grasped onto. That's why Mardi Gras and Jazz Fest and the restaurant scenes here have been so successful after Katrina, even more successful than they were before, and the Saints are the exact same. They're no different. They're just uh, a part of this um, of this culture that people did not want to lose, and so they rushed out and supported this team uh, after Katrina, before anybody knew this team was going to be good, before anybody knew Drew Brees was going to be Drew Brees. No one knew who Sean Payton was. Reggie Bush hadn't been drafted yet. But yet, the, the season tickets were on sale to sell out in March and April. Um, 
to become a, a sellout for the 2006 season uh, because people felt, uh, you know, responsibility and obligation, uh, almost out of civic duty, to support the team and not allow it or give the league a, 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 a reason to allow this team to move. And I think it's not only one of the great stories in New Orleans history, I think it's one of the great stories in, in sports history, what, what's happened here. You talk a lot of it in the book about luck and fate, and I can go over a few things that it just doesn't make sense that they happened. You know, talk about fate. Drew Brees on the last play of the 2005 season rocks his shoulder. Basically, that's the only way that Drew Brees would have been considering coming to New Orleans is if he had that injury. Um, Sean Payton really wanted to be hired by the Green Bay Packers, really wanted that job. Instead, they go with Mark, uh, McCarthy. So it, we end up with Coach Payton. You know, uh, the, the Houston Texans decide out of nowhere to pick Mario Williams. We end up with Reggie Bush. All, we draft Marquise Colston in the seventh round, and he turns out to be a superstar. All these things that never happened to the Saints, never happened to the Saints. It was always the opposite. It was always the worst-case scenario. Suddenly, all these things started to build up that were the best-case scenario. And I think you do a really good job talking about the book, talking in the book about how lucky and fortunate the team was after Katrina. Well, let's face it, Steve, they were long overdue, right? I mean, oh, God, yes. all those years of the ball bouncing the wrong way and the kick sailing wide right and the, uh, you know, the um, bad decisions that blew up on them. Uh, I think this franchise was probably overdue. Maybe the gridiron gods intervened here because, uh, there's no doubt that um, a lot of things fell into place for them uh, after Katrina. And um, I think the first thing, most important, is what we talked about earlier, the Drew Brees situation. I mean, it all comes down to that. I mean, this is a guy that, as much respect as I have for Sean Payton and what he's done in this organization, it comes down to uh, Drew Brees, a Hall of Fame player in his prime, better than he's ever been, more committed and driven than he's ever been. Uh, really, that's what's been the... Uh, catalyst for this um this organization and uh yeah it just it just happened and uh, you know going back it it's interesting to go back and look at the 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 way that was covered back when Drew Brees signed it it was a big story but it certainly wasn't like he was the savior of New Orleans back then Reggie Bush was definitely the mm -hmm. savior uh, he was the guy the face of the franchise he was the guy who was going to be seen as the the guy that was going to lead this franchise out of the abyss and Breeze was kind of a secondary figure. And uh, it's really interesting now to look back on that because uh, Breeze, I think in some ways, Saints fans felt like, well, here's another broken-down veteran quarterback. We're getting all these, you know, the Kim Stablers and uh, Steve Walshes and the, you know, the guys that have come in here all through those years. I think Saints fans feared that. And they really had no idea the, the caliber of player they were getting in Breeze. I want to talk about just a couple of moments. And the first moment I want to talk about is from 2006 and the opening night. So there's all the festivities, all the emotions. There's U2. There's Green Day. It's this big carnival almost. All this excitement. You get into the game. The Falcons get the ball. And on third down, Scott Vegeta has a chance to basically scoop up the ball and maybe run in for a touchdown. He misses it. Now, you would never think that that was luck, but it turned out to be lucky that he missed it because the next play... Anytime I do a list, and I love to do lists of the best plays of this or the best plays of that, this is always number two on my list now. 
used to be number one, but now it's number two because of Tracy Porter. But what was it like to be in the Dome when the punt gets blocked and the team scores a touchdown? It, it just had to be almost surreal, right? Well, it really was because and, and Steve Gleason, who, who blocked that punt, yep. talks about that a lot. Uh, that, it, that the thing that made it such a um, an explosive event was that you didn't know it was coming. Mm-hmm. You, know, you didn't see it coming. You know, the, the other great play, I would say, in, in Saints history that is reminiscent of that was Tracy Porter's interception of Favre before Garrett Hartley's kick. A lot of people talk about Garrett right. Hartley's kick in the NFC Championship game as being one of the great plays, but it didn't have the, quite the same burst a suddenness because you, you sensed it was coming. It was a it was a methodical drive by the Saints and they get in the red zone and, and you sense the field goal. You had no idea that this punt was going to be blocked when it happened. People were just getting into their seats and just, you know, they're all this stuff settling down for the from the Green Day uh U two concert and all of a sudden this happens, uh yeah, it was just a, I think a, a burst of emotion that people were just ready to unleash. Uh, there had been so much frustration. People have been doing all the, you know, the hassles of dealing with your insurance agents and FEMA and the, and the you know road home program. And football games on Sunday became in New Orleans kind of became a church revival. And there was so much emotion there on Sundays. People gathered together with their neighbors and escaped the drudgery of the recovery for three hours on Sundays. And, and the fact that the Saints returned here 2-0, and a surprise 2-0 and start, and were playing their arch-rival Falcons, and the league really did a great honor to the city of New Orleans by setting this Super Bowl-like uh, you know, atmosphere and setting with the, with the concert and everything. I mean, it was really just a remarkable day all the way around. And uh, for it to happen to a guy like Steve Gleason, who's one of my favorite players I've ever covered and remains a good friend to this day, a guy that you know was is married to a New Orleanian who understood New Orleans, who got his place in history, understood it right away, uh, and, and a guy that's always going to have that uh, on his uh, legacy as part of his, le- his legacy here. Uh, it couldn't have happened to a better person for me, and uh, it was still to this day probably not the most emotional interview I've ever done afterwards talking to him because uh, he understood right away what he had done and what it meant to the city and what it meant to his legacy. Uh, so it was pretty cool to, to, to experience that. The Sportscasters here, we're talking to Jeff Duncan of the New Orleans Times Picayune. You can follow him on Twitter at Jeff Duncan TP. Uh, his book is From Bags to Ridges. We only have a couple minutes left with him. Just a couple more questions, and let's talk a little bit about the Super Bowl season of 2010. Obviously, any Saints fan will tell you it's the most fun they've ever had as a football fan just to go on that ride, which started with a, what was it, a six-touchdown day by Drew Brees on opening day against Detroit. And uh, then I think the first huge game that kind of made us realize, oh, luck, we talked about luck, how about this? You know, the second game of the season, instead of having to go to Philadelphia and face Donovan McNabb, we get to go to, instead, go to Philadelphia and play against Kevin Cobb in one of his first starts. Boom, right there. There's another example of luck. You know, and then the huge comebacks against the Dolphins and another example of luck or fate. How about the missed field goal in the Washington game? All these moments. When you look back on the 2010 season, the regular season, what moments kind of come back to you and, and make you think, wow, that was incredible that that happened? Well, I, I've 
talked about this before. I really felt like the, the moment I felt like this team was on something special was when they went down to Miami and came back from that huge deficit because it I actually that was the only game all year I picked the Saints to lose. Uh, I felt like that was a classic trap game. Yep. They were coming off, I think, a bye week that the Dolphins were had two weeks to prepare. The Saints were coming off an emotional uh, Monday night win against the Giants where they just played incredibly and blew the Giants out. And uh, they came into that Miami game with no emotion or just getting throttled. Nothing seemed to be going their way in the first half. Ricky Williams is and, running all over him. Yeah, and they just, it seemed like nothing was going their way. It, it was just the game you've seen, we've all seen, and not just to the Saints, but any NFL team. It's so hard week to week in this league, the talent level so even, that if you don't have that extra edge, uh, you can get blown out. And it just seemed like it was inevitable. And then out of nowhere, they get this play right before halftime where the, where the Dolphins are actually just kind of driving down the field. It looks like they're going to get another score. Yep. And Roman Harper pokes the ball free, and they end up driving down. They get this late touchdown from uh, Colston? from Drew Brees. Or Brees ran it in, right, because yeah. Colston was called Brees, short. Yeah, dives over the top and gets them that score. And... Uh, then all of a sudden, things start falling in place on the second half, and they make this biggest. They end up blowing the Dolphins out in the yep. second half. Um, boy, you know that that's just something that that I've never I've never seen before. And uh, you know, you can almost sense it talking to the players. At that point, they almost realize something special was going on. That maybe fate was was, if you want to call it fate, had a hand in this thing. It really it was a tangible feeling among the players. And, uh, you know, I think that people you know, will look back on this season uh, that the Saints had, and, you know, it wasn't just a Super Bowl championship. They, they won, that was one of the best seasons in the history of the NFL. I mean, they started 13-0. and Only seven teams in NFL history have done that. They were beating teams into the ground. I mean, they, they blew out the New England Patriots. Oh, that was uh, When Drew Brees had one of the greatest games in the history of the league. Yep. This wasn't just a... You know, just a Super Bowl winning season. This was one of the great seasons in NFL history, and I don't think the Saints, even if they win another Super Bowl, will ever have a, a year like that. Were you nervous? Kind of the same old Saints kind of a feeling uh, towards the end of the season. Obviously, they let the game. I don't. I don't. I mean, losing to Dallas. That was Dallas's game to win. They needed that game a lot more than we did, and they kind of just showed it and won that game. I, I can live with that. But then losing the game the next week at home with a chance to clinch the number one seed, I got to admit, I was nervous. I felt like the team was getting tight, and I just felt like there was we weren't going to be able to finish it. Did you Were you starting to get that feeling, or did you stay confident all the way through? Well, I mean, I, you know, I was, certainly wasn't nervous. I mean, I'm, I don't have a stake in the game at all, but, uh, you know, I didn't I, – I did have to admit there was a, a little bit of doubt as to what team was going to show up when they played Arizona. Uh, but the Saints were very confident. When you, if you were around the team, there was a confidence level uh, that they felt confident that they were going to get this thing done. And I think Sean Payton handled that that injury situation. They really had a spate of injuries in the secondary at the time. And his main goal was just to get everybody healthy. And once they blew out uh, Arizona, you you sensed immediately, hey, this was the same team we saw yep. back against the Patriots and Giants, the exact same team. Uh, and it really seemed like it was an L. What surprised me the most was when we got to Miami and just how no one was really picking the Saints at the time. I, I remember getting down there, and everybody was picking the Colts, and uh, the Saints were a five-and-a-half-point underdog. And it just surprised me because I felt like these teams were dead even 
And if anything, the Saints had the intangible, the extra motivation of being kind of the, the underdog in this game. And Sean Payton, of course, later on said that. He felt like uh, they not only had a better team on the field, but they had the advantage off the field because they were the underdogs with the perfect uh, situation for them. Let's talk about Miami for one second, then I'm going to let you go. Uh, so the Saints score uh, to make it two at the time, and then they get the two-point conversion, and they're up by seven. And I know in my mind I was thinking, okay, the worst thing that Peyton Manning can do right now is tie us. And I was almost sitting there at home. I just had surgery a few weeks ago, so I couldn't go or anything. I was sitting there at home kind of feeling like, all right, He's going to go down. He's going to tie it. But we might have some time in regulation. And if not, the season's going to come down to a coin flip. And that's okay because I feel like we can't lose a coin flip. It just didn't feel like it was possible. But instead, Tracy Porter picks it off. And I know, I know, we, I know we're going to be the Super Bowl champions. What, what was that like? That, when Peyton Manning has that ball going down, what were your feelings? What, were, what did you think you were going to write? And how did the story change? when Tracy Porter picked the ball off? Well, see, I felt a little bit differently. I felt like the, the Colts would, would probably go down and get a touchdown and tie, but I felt like the Saints were going to have enough have time. Enough time yeah. They're very good at, at managing that clock. You know, Peyton's pretty good at that stuff. And the Saints really were moving the ball at will against the Colts at that time. If you if you go back and look at the, it, it, the only time they didn't score was when they went for it on fourth down, down right. in the last three quarters. Otherwise, I, I, I felt like they could move the ball at will. Breeze was was in a zone. I mean, he only threw, I think, three three incompletions after the first quarter. One was a grounding intentional, uh, was an intentional spike, and the other one was a drop by Reggie Bush. So uh, I felt confident they would be able to get another a shot to win the game. But I do remember distinctly seeing Porter's play develop, the angle we were at in the press box, was almost directly behind Peyton Manning's angle at that time from behind. And you could see Porter read it, jump the route, and step in front of it. And I could just see it coming. I called him out while the ball was in the air that he was going to pick that off. And to me, the, the most uh, the, the most emotional thing for me, not that, and I don't get emotional. I mean, I'm not a Saints fan. I'm a journalist. I, I'm <laughs> Come from on, New Orleans. Jeff. I don't care. But what was emotional for me was seeing you know, my colleague, Peter Finney, who you know is 80 years old, has covered this team from its inception, has been to every Super Bowl, and I know he's seen a ton of bad football over the years. And to sit with him, uh, you know, while he covered, you know, probably the greatest event in his sports history, uh, I thought was pretty cool. And then also to see the footage on CNN and ESPN that night of the French quarterback in New Orleans and see the city, what it meant to the city of New Orleans and the people here, and to see that celebration. Uh, was remarkable, and it's something I'll never forget. And that was really, you know, when you talk about From Bags to Riches and how this was not just a sports book, it's really a book about New Orleans and also social study, uh, that, uh, to me, uh, cemented that. You know, what other city do you know of where when the team is playing a Super Bowl somewhere else, the entire downtown areas, hotel rooms, are all sold out because people came to experience it and party in the city uh, that doesn't happen in Pittsburgh. It doesn't happen really anywhere else. And uh, I think that speaks to really what this story was all about. Again, it's Jeff Duncan from the New Orleans Times Picayune giving us a ton of time here. We've got to thank him so much for coming on. You can follow him at Twitter. He is Jeff Duncan TP, which I assume stands for Times Picayune, not Tracy Porter. But I could be wrong. 
And uh, he <laughs> has written a fantastic book, which we suggest you check out. It's called From Bags to Riches. Where can, where can they get the book? Is there any way to read this book, like... Uh, on your iPad or that kind of a thing? Is there a Kindle version or anything like that yet? Well, they've been working to format that, and I've almost given up hope on it. It's taken so long. But uh, the best thing to do is to call AcadianHouse.com. The name of the publisher is Acadian House. Mm -hmm. It's out of Lafayette, Louisiana. If you, if you order online at AcadianHouse.com, I think you can still get copies signed by me and Deuce McAllister, who, who wrote the foreword of the book. Uh, they still have, I believe, signed copies from both of us, and that's a good way of getting it, getting you know, a nice, uh, maybe a little lanyard to your book. Uh, so I would suggest doing it that way. Incredible. It's an incredible book. Uh, thanks again, Jeff, for joining us. We really appreciate it, and we'll talk to you soon, okay? My pleasure, Steve. I enjoyed it as always. Thank you. And you're listening to my boyfriend Steve on the Sportscasters. And, oh yeah, Don's on it too. Alright, we are back here on the Sportscasters. want to thank Stu Hackle. want to thank Jeff Duncan. Donnie, we are Book Club of the Month free agents. <laughs> we, need, uh, we need a new book. I don't know where to go next. Uh, let's give it a week. If you think of something... And you think we should use it as the book of the month. Why don't you email us? Our email is thesportscasters at gmail.com. Thesportscasters at gmail.com. Very easy. No dashes, no underscores, nothing like that. And uh, also, you can find our email on our website, which is www.sports-casters.com. Under the contact tab, you can find all kinds of information. Our email, our Twitter, which is www.sports.com. Twitter.com slash sports underscore casters or Donnie is at Don Like Sports. I am at Diversity23. You can also find our Facebook there, which is www.facebook.com slash the sportscasters. And our blogs. This is something that we really want to stress this week. We have two books to give away. One book is another copy of From Bags to Riches. And the other book is called At the Fights, and it's a compilation of a bunch of really great writing about boxing. And if you're a boxing fan, I think you would love this book. It came highly recommended by Alex Belth, and uh, I know he wrote a review of it in Sports Illustrated, and uh, it was actually compiled by George Kimball, and uh, it's called At the Fights, American Writers on Boxing. So we have that book and another copy of From Bags to Riches. And what we'd like to do is use our blogs to give them away. So the blog is thesportscasters.blogspot.com. And Donnie and I both did kind of live versions of watching the draft. And we did a live blog for the first round of the draft. I did one. Donnie did one. Donnie watched NFL.com or NFL Network. Right. I watched ESPN. Just kind of give it a different perspective that way. And anyone who comments on that blog in the next two weeks will be entered into a drawing to win From Bags to Riches and At the Fights. And if you'd like to specify which book you'd like to win, you can mention it there. Obviously, you'd have to be logged in to yep. do that, so we'd have your email address. But uh, 
so yeah, go on there, check it out. The information might seem like it's dated because it's regarding the draft, but both of us took a pretty humorous approach to it. So check it out. It's they're both interesting reads. And plus, there's other stuff, previous blogs that are still relevant. I know I did one on Apple stuff, right, right, and some cool stuff to to check out. So make sure you check out our blog. It's the sportscasters.blogspot.com, and I'll get something fresh up there this week as well. But comments on the draft blogs to win books, and we will announce next week what the new book of the month book is okay business pick four last week donnie went three and one he won tampa over pittsburgh one to nothing oklahoma city over denver 100 to 97 the tampa bay lightning have a two to nothing lead over washington and he boldly predicted that washington would be in a two to nothing hole as we started this podcast so congratulations don on hitting a bold prediction wait did i you did yeah, I think I predicted the Sabres would put them in that hole, though. So I'm not sure I would give myself credit for that one. Hmm. I had it written down that Washington would be in an 0 2 hole. Yeah, that's kind of part of what I said. I'll give it to you. Okay. And you lost Chicago over Vancouver 2-1 to one in OT. So one OT goal away from a 4-0 week. That brings your record to 37-32. and 32. I am 36-33. and 33. After a 2-2 two and two week, I won Oklahoma City over Denver, 100-97. I won Montreal over Boston in Game 6, 2-1. I lost the Penguins in Game 7, 1-0. And I predicted that the Sabres, Bruins, Penguins, and Canucks would be in Round 2. Only the Canucks and the Bruins made it. Donnie, Game of the Week. Yeah, oddly enough, with uh, just overall about our pick fours, it seems like we're the best at basketball, which is strange. Yeah, we hit a lot of basketball games. Uh, the game of the week is Philly-Boston Game 3 uh, tomorrow night, 7 p.m. Uh, that is Wednesday night. I'm going to take Boston at home. I think Philly might be done. And I, I don't think Boston's going to overlook them or anything. I don't think this is a trap game. They lost the same series last year after leading 3 nothing. I don't see them. I mean, they only have a 2-0 lead now, but I just don't see them put, taking the foot off the pedal. I want to talk about the game of the week for a second. It's hard to decide what the game of the week is right now because it's hard to project out over the course of a week what each series is going to be, where each series is going to stand. Right, it'd be easy if there was a game seven. Right, so I have to kind of decide on a Wednesday game usually because that's the only game that I can guarantee is going to have what significance. Right. And I thought that this series has a lot of significance in game three because there's just no way that the Flyers are going to beat the Bruins two years in a row down three to nothing. Making history. So the yeah. Flyers have to win this game. And the Bruins, if they win it, they can almost essentially put one foot into the Eastern Conference Finals. So that's why I picked this game. And I'm also going to pick the Bruins to beat the Flyers. I think they're just, I think they're just pounding them right now. I think that the Flyers and Sabres series was a little bit more physical than any, anyone predicted. And after seven games, I think the Flyers came out of it with some bumps and bruises. And I think one reason why no one wanted to play Boston in the first round is because you kind of figured if you, if you beat them, they would beat you a bit. Yeah. And I think that they're beating the Flyers a bit. I think their defense is strong and physical. And I just think that they're not going to give up. And I, I, th- I think that they could very, very well represent the Eastern Conference in the, in the Stanley Cup Finals. So more and more I watch this, it feels like Boston is going gonna, is gonna to go all the way. I read an interesting article, too. I can't remember who wrote it, so I can't give anybody credit. But uh, Philly, from a leadership role, is very undisciplined. Mike Richards has taken a lot of bad penalties. Chris Pronger, in the minimal time he's played, has really hurt them more often than anything, taking a lot of real bad penalties and 
just from the from the top down, Danny Breer's taken probably more penalties than you would have liked. Surprisingly, after the Sabre series, Danny Breer was a minus with all the points he had. So their leadership isn't isn't coming through when it needs to be. Uh, thank God for them, for Van Riemsdyk, I guess. Yeah. Uh, the Worldwide Leader game, it, I picked uh, 1230 Saturday on, on NBC, Tampa Bay at Washington. I'm going to pick Washington in my next two picks kind of – piggyback into my bold prediction. So I'm going to take Washington to win that game uh, and avoid going 0-3. All right. My pick for the worldwide leader is the Sunday night baseball game, 8 o'clock on ESPN. I've had a chance to watch the Sunday night baseball game a couple times the last couple weeks, just kind of get used to the new announcers and the new production of Sunday night baseball. And this week it's the Phillies and the Braves, Sunday at 8 o'clock. I'm going to pick the Phillies. They're just the better team. So I will take the Phillies Sunday night. Over your Braves. Over my Braves. My host choice game, I'm sticking with hockey because I'm bad at it. Uh, Wednesday, tomorrow night, 8 p.m., I believe it's on versus probably TSN too. San Jose is playing in Detroit, and I'm going to take Detroit to win that game at home. Okay, I am going to pick the Predators over the Canucks in game four Thursday, 8.30 on versus. I really like the way the Predators are playing. Please, for the NHL, I hope they don't make the cup, but I think they could. <laughs> uh, and I think that I would very much be looking forward to a Predators-San Jose Conference Finals if that is to happen, but I will pick the Predators over the Canucks in Game 4. They're an interesting team, especially in like today's NHL. You look at a team like Philly, who is totally top, front-loaded. All their forwards have all their talent, and their goalies are killing them. The Sabres uh, have that quote-unquote star goalie, and their forwards don't get enough done. And Ryan Miller really didn't get enough done. And then you've got Nashville, who's that similar type of team. Their goalie's really playing really well, and they're not getting a ton of scoring, but they're getting timely scoring. And they beat out a team in Anaheim who could score a lot but couldn't stop anything. So a lot of uh, contrasting styles. My bold prediction for the week, like I said, piggybacks on my last two, I think Washington and Detroit will both either win or lead their series. When we, or win or be winning or tied. I was going to pr- predict them to be straight up winning, but I don't think the series will be over by the next podcast. So I'm going to say they're either going to be winning or tied in their series. Both of them are down 0-2 right now. My prediction, bull prediction, is somewhat similar to yours. We only had one sweep in the last round, and that's what made it great. But I think there's some tired teams after a great first round. So I'm going to bully predict that this round, by, and by the next podcast, there will be three sweeps. Wow. Yeah, that's bold. So I'll pick three sweeps. I think, uh, I think, I think the Bruins are definitely going to sweep the Flyers. And I, I think the Sharks might sweep the, 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 the Red Wings. The Red Wings are panicking a bit. Yeah, I think so too. But, I mean, they get one game at home. And I think if there's any team that all it takes is one game to make them nervous about their chances, I think it's San Jose. And Detroit's got that game at home. I mean, it's really going to come down to game three. I don't think they're going to come out of a 3-0 hole. So if they don't win that game, I'm not feeling too good about my bold prediction. All right. Well, I think that's just about it for this week. We want to thank Stu Hackle, and we want to thank Jeff Duncan. I don't have anything firm to give you for next week, but I'm working on it right now. And probably again, Zach. Probably Zach. Yeah. And again, in two weeks... We will have Dave Damashek, so we'll have that to look forward to. 
As for now, I think you got everything. Definitely check out our blogs. Please do. TheSportsCasters.blogspot.com. And if you want to win a copy of From Bags to Riches, which is autographed by the author, or a copy of At the Fights, make sure you leave a comment on one of our NFL draft blogs. Cue the hip. 